it is good to be back uh, safely and uh, in health after about 30 days on the road. It was a very informative and very inspiring trip to be able to visit your brothers and sisters in different parts of the world. Uh, flew into Melbourne, was able to visit with Mr. and Mrs. King. Uh, he was very alert the day that I was there. We talked for about an hour, but his body just isn't what it used to be. But they certainly appreciate your prayers. And we flew up to uh, Adelaide, where we had a ministerial conference. We were also able to ordain uh, Adam Jennings. His dad died uh, a couple years ago. A very enthusiastic young man. He's been serving in the Adelaide congregation with Mr. Michael Gill. From there, we had a uh, TWP over in Perth. They had registered about 33 people, and about 40 extra people showed up. So they had to get some extra chairs. Then flew on to uh, South Africa. We had services there where we ordained... uh, no, we didn't ordain anybody there. <laughs> but um, <clears throat> had a very positive visit there. Had some new people that have uh, come from different other groups. And we did three, w- three TWPs, one in Dur- Durban, one in Port Elizabeth, and one in Cape Town. So it was very exciting. We had three, actually four ministerial conferences. We had five TWPs. Our last TWP was in London and we had about 80 people showed up there. Again, they had to go get some extra chairs, and they actually borrowed them from a mosque that was right down the street. So uh, a lot of very interesting experiences. I think I was most encouraged by just the, the stability and the dedication of our ministers and members, but even more so some very capable young people, uh, both in Australia and South Africa and other places. Uh, I certainly appreciate your prayers. I did about 15 airplane flights, and that's 30 takeoffs and landings, which allows for plenty of possibilities for things to happen, especially when you're reading in the news about um, Boeing 737 Maxes that were falling out of the sky. We were on some 737s, but they were older, thankfully, uh, so that didn't happen. I appreciate your prayers very much. We had a couple of tight spots uh, the day I got to Nairobi. Uh, we were eating dinner with a number of the men there, and we were watching television. It was basically saying that uh, the airline, the airport personnel are going on strike as of midnight. So we're wondering if we'd ever get out of Nairobi. But as it turned out, when you have a strong government, they know how to solve problems. They just arrested the strike leaders and brought in the military. <laughs> And they handled the bags, and they took care of the flights. So my flight took off on time on Thursday morning. Uh, Flying into Glasgow, Scotland, it was at nighttime, very heavy wind, and you're trying to land, and the plane is going like this, and you're hoping that you get on the ground. But uh, everything worked out fine. As I mentioned, it was very encouraging. One other thing I think should mention that... uh, Franklin Graham, the son of Billy Graham, was in Australia the week before I got to Australia. So I asked the people that came to the TWP over in Perth how many went to hear Franklin Graham. And about half a dozen people did. 
And he came down and did a two-hour presentation with a, about an hour-and-a-half Christian rock band to get everybody kind of stirred up. And then he spoke for about 20 minutes and basically said that God loves sinners. Uh, you need to repent, give your heart to the Lord, and then that begins your journey to peace. So I told the people, I said, you're going to hear something very different this evening. And we talked about Bible prophecy that uh, Mr. Graham doesn't really touch on. It was very encouraging, though, to see the young people, see the dedication of our brethren there, ministers, leaders, and members. It was also very sobering, because being in Australia, being in South Africa, coming back through England, very sobering to see what's happening to the Israelite nations around the world. And basically, they're all in trouble. They're all in trouble. Mr. Weston was talking about the impact of Brexit on uh, the people in England. And the Europeans think the, the Brits are crazy. They can't agree to this, can't agree to that, can't agree to stay, can't agree to leave. And the credibility of the British government is just basically down the tubes. And then people look at what's happening in America, and we're tearing ourselves apart here. Uh, you know, we've had weather problems, political problems in Australia when I was there. They had a lot of rain up in the north. Rivers were flooding. But in the south, it was extremely dry, extremely dry. What was happening up in the north, they have a drought. They've had a drought for several years. The farmers were hand feeding their cattle. And then the floods come along and drowned about half a million cows. They were also feeding cows and using up their grain that they normally use in the wintertime. So the farmers have been hit for the loss of cows and also the loss of winter feed. In South Africa, if you're a European, you're basically not welcome there. In Canada, I came across another book, Losing True North. It's talking about the impact of the young prime minister up there. Around the world, the Israelite nations are in trouble, which really reminds you, go back and read Leviticus 26, where God says there, if you disobey and despise my commandments, these curses are going to come upon you. He's talking about weather. He's talking about uh, a lot of other things happening. And he said, I'm going to break the pride of your power. I'm going to break the pride of your power. And that is what is happening literally around the world. And it's happening because we have turned away from God. You know, we're living in a period of time where even professing believers, not in the church of God, but just anybody that professes to believe in Jesus Christ, professes to believe in the Bible, uh, are viewed as, as weird. You quote the Bible and you can go to jail for hate speech, not just people in the church, but anybody professing these things. I talked to the students in uh, living education yesterday, actually Thursday, about what's happening and mentioned a number of different books that are on the market. One was entitled, God is Not Great. Another one was entitled, The God Delusion. Another one was entitled, The Rage Against God. Another one, How the West Lost God. David Limbaugh is the brother of Rush Limbaugh, wrote a book about 10 years ago entitled Persecution, How Liberals Are Waging War Against Christianity. So this is the world we live in. This is the world we live in. 
There's a Time article, June 29, 2016, which says pretty much the same thing. said, regular Christians are no longer welcome in American culture. This is the world we're living in today, and it was very evident. I think there was a situation in Australia when I was there. There was kind of a debate going on that the leader of the parliament said, should we really begin our sessions with the Lord's Prayer? said, we should really be giving the Aborigines time and other religions equal time because parliament down here looks like a Christian club. But it's a Christian club that has passed legislation about same-sex marriage and homosexuality. This is not the, the nations that we used to live in. You know, a number of these books all mention the same thing. Another book I mentioned to the students, it's written by David Jeremiah. He's a Protestant pastor out in California. But the title caught my eye. It said, I never thought I'd see the day. I never thought I'd see the day. And you look at the uh, contents. He said, when atheists would be angry, when Christians wouldn't know they were at war, when Jesus would be so profaned, when marriage would be obsolete, when morality would be in free fall, when the Bible would be marginalized, and he goes on. But this is the world in which we're living today. One other source I wanted to mention came across this as I was putting some material together. This comes from actually Newsweek. And the date was uh, January 7th, 2019. It's a Catholic study that said Christian prosecution, Christian persecution and genocide is worse, worse now than any time in history. Than any time in history. You've got to go back to about 1400, 1500 A.D., about the end of the Protestant Reformation, to find out, to get something close to the persecution that's happening today to people who just believe in Jesus Christ. So my question today as we get into the sermon, how do you survive? How do you function as adults, as young people, in a world that is increasingly hostile to God the Bible, and the teachings of Christianity. That's not the title of the sermon, but that's the question I want to ask. How do you survive? How do you function as adults and young people in a society or in a world that is basically increasingly hostile to God? How do you raise children? How do you raise children in an environment where they pick this up in the media? They hear about it in schools. How do you deal with situations like that? And that's the subject that I want to talk about today. But to talk about the subject, I brought a metal friend with me. <laughs> we call him Sir Lancelot. Now, this particular individual, this metal knight, uh, is quite well-traveled, and he's had some very interesting adventures. I think he was made in Mexico, I picked him up in Georgia, transported him to Charlotte, and put him in a position of honor right inside the door to our castle, our home. And we played games with the kids as they were growing up. I said, when you get taller than Sir Lancelot, you get an ice cream cone. So every time the kids would visit, they would run up beside him and stand there. How tall am I? How tall am I? 
And eventually we lost, or we gave away about five ice cream cones because they all got taller. But one day I came home and Sir Lancelot was gone. He was missing. Now, my wife had rearranged things in the house. And I finally found Sir Lancelot in the corner of a little bathroom with a towel over his arm to serve to the guests. (laughs) So Sir Lancelot, one of the gallant knights of the round table and from Camelot, was reassigned to domestic duty. (laughs) They might ask, what does that have to do with living, trying to live in a world that is increasingly anti-religious, anti-God, and anti-Bible. If you turn to Ephesians chapter 6, and hopefully you're already ahead of me, the Apostle Paul gave some advice to the church in the first century of how to live and how to function in an adversarial world. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. He says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of darkness in this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. So Paul was encouraging us to put on the whole armor of God. And I want to kind of follow the example that Mr. Strain mentioned last Sabbath. He started going through the uh, 119th Psalm. And he said there's an awful lot more here than we normally see. And I think I have read over this section of Scripture, putting on the whole armor of God. And just, well, it's, it's a nice analogy. It's a nice analogy, but there's really more than an analogy there. It's very meaty. It's very meaningful. And he said, this is how you survive in an adversarial climate. So I want to look at each one of these pieces of armor. And actually, there are about seven parts of spiritual armor that I want to focus on in our sermon today. But why do we need to put on this armor? you turn to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. I think it's always helpful to understand why we're doing something, why we need to do something, why we really must do something. In 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9, Peter is encouraging the brethren. He said, be sober, that is, be serious, be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And he's seeking each one of us. See, we've been called out of this world to be different. We've been called out of this world to qualify to be in the coming kingdom of God, to replace Satan. And this is why he's after you and why he's after me. Why he's after all of us. And he functions like a roaring lion. Now, lions don't go around and, I'm going to get you. They come through the grass very slowly. 
until they see something that they want and they, they pounce them. Then they roar. <laughs> I got them. Because they growled beforehand, everybody would run or the animals would run. So he says he wants to sneak up on people and he'll catch you whenever you're not aware. But in verse 9, Peter says, resist him. But you can't resist if you don't recognize. So we've got to recognize who he is, what he's doing, and resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. And again, that was what I saw traveling around the world in the last month or so. We've got brethren dealing with issues, same issues you're dealing with, but we're all dealing with the same thing in countries that are increasingly anti-God, anti-Bible, anti-Jesus Christ. So we need to be praying for each other. Again, why is he after us? You can jot down a couple scriptures. Matthew 13, verses 10 to 11. Jesus was asked, why do you speak in parables? Jesus' answer was, because it has been given to you to understand the mysteries of the kingdom of God. You have been given a special understanding of the plan and purpose of human life that Satan does not want people to know or understand. Yet do we value that? Another scripture in John 15:16. John 15:16. Jesus said, "You did not choose me, but I chose you." You didn't choose me. I have chosen you. Put your name in there. Why are you here? Well, my mom and dad are here. Or my friends are here. No, you're here because God has called you. God has chosen to work with you. And that's what Satan wants to disrupt. He wants to discourage you, disillusion you, destroy you. And he will try everything that he can. If one thing doesn't work, he'll try something else. So we are targets. We're targets for Satan's activities. If we understand that, it's going to be very helpful to us. Your Revelation 3.11 talks about holding fast what you have. Hang on to what you have. Don't let go of what you have. Don't give it away. Because we're told a crown is there waiting for us. So don't take that lightly. Don't throw that away. Don't walk away. Don't quit. This is why Paul talks about put on the whole armor of God, the whole armor, all the pieces that we're going to be talking about. In Matthew twenty four thirteen, Jesus said, those that endure to the end will be saved. Those that endure, they hang on, they fight a good fight. So those are the ones who are going to be in the kingdom of God. But to endure, we've got to put on the whole armor of God. So what is that whole armor of God? Let's talk about seven parts of it. Number one, go back to Ephesians. And I'm going to use one, you know, a couple of major scriptures, and then I'll mention some others. Otherwise, you're going to be writing all afternoon. <laughs> but in Ephesians chapter 6, let's notice what Paul talks about as the armor of God. It says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God, Ephesians 6 and verse 13, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. 
Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth. Having girded your waist with truth. This is the first part of the armor. The truth of God. Paul is writing to an audience that understood what Roman soldiers were dressed like. And normally a Roman soldier would have kind of a a girdle around his his waist, usually made up of of leather uh, strips, probably two or three inches wide. And they overlapped. Sometimes it was just across the front, and other times it went the whole way around the body. But that gave the soldier mobility. He could move. He could move. This knight beside me has kind of a, a steel part around his body. Uh, but that protects the loins. It protects your waist. It protects your your hips. <clears throat> That's the physical aspect. But the spiritual aspect is gird your loins, your waist, with truth, with the truth of God. A couple of scriptures here in John fourteen six. Jesus said, "I am the way, the truth, and the life." In other words, my teachings are the way. My teachings will lead you to eternal life. They'll protect you against the lies of Satan. So God's truth is part of the armor. John 17, 17, Jesus said, thy word is truth. He's talking about this book. He said, this book is truth. And that's why it's so important to prove that the Bible is the inspired word of God. It's not just a book that some people put together to try and figure out what God is like. The Bible said it's inspired by God. Every word is inspired by God. It contains valuable information. In Psalm 119, verse 142, David said, Your law is truth. Your law is truth. And it's not just the, 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 the spiritual laws where God says that you should not commit adultery. And there are consequences when that happens. You should not steal. These are spiritual laws, but there are consequences. You know, if I... Take this book and hold it out. And if I leave go of it, you know what's going to happen because of the law of gravity. And these spiritual laws are just as accurate, just as powerful as the spiritual laws. So David said, your law is truth. And then in Psalm 119, verse 97 and 105, David says, I love your law. Why? He said, because it makes me wiser than my enemies. It makes me wiser than my enemies. In other words, what David is saying is, because of God's law, I know things that other people don't know. The world doesn't understand that homosexuality is an abomination. Oh, you can't say that. You can't say that. But there are consequences. There are doctors that know what the consequences are but they're either afraid to publish or they're not allowed to publish what the medical consequences are because this is not treating people equally, even though they know what the consequences will be. 
David also said in Psalm 119, your law is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It shows me how to live. You know, I grew up in basically a Protestant home. My dad was a deacon and elder. My mom was a Sunday school teacher. And I was given certain principles, which I didn't fully appreciate until I went to college. And I saw what happened to people that were not given the same advice. And they got into some really difficult situations. And fortunately, I had some principles to work with that they didn't have. And it kept me out of some really bad situations. See, what David was saying is your law is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. It shows me how to avoid the problems that much of the world gets into because they don't know. They've been told there's no such thing as absolutes. There's no such thing as right and wrong, which apparently the Australian government didn't like in Mr. Smith's program. See, because that puts limits on what can be done if there is such a thing as right and wrong. But truth, the truth of God is part of our spiritual armor. And when Jesus came before Pilate, he was asked, are you a king? He said, well, those who hear my voice recognize the truth in that. And Pilate said, what's truth? And that's basically happening today. Well, what is true? Nobody knows what truth is. Well, that's not true. That's a lie. If we look at what young people are being taught today, what the media says to people, that there's no God, that's a fairy tale. There's no devil, that's another fairy tale. There's no supernatural, that's your imagination working over time. This is all silly superstition. There's no absolute truths, no right and wrong. There's no such thing as good and evil, that's your opinion. Whatever your opinion is, that's okay. The Bible is not inspired by God. It's only a book of myths and legends. Now, these are all lies, but these are things that Satan works on people. And if, you hear, if you're around a bunch of people that say this all the time, then you're, going to be, you're liable to be drawn into that orbit. Some very interesting scriptures. You can jot them down and read them later. Isaiah 59. Maybe you read the whole chapter. Isaiah 59, verses 4, then 14 and 15, says no one pleads for the truth. Nobody's standing up to say this is what the truth is. Now, Franklin Graham, I think we've got to give him credit to a degree, he says things are bad. <laughs> but he doesn't have the solution. They're hoping to you know, go off to heaven somewhere. But he doesn't have the truth. He doesn't have the full truth. But Isaiah said, no one pleads for the truth. He also mentions verses 14 and 15. Truth has fallen in the street. Truth has fallen in the street. Nobody's talking about it. Nobody's promoting it. They're promoting other things. Jeremiah 7, verse 28, it says, truth has perished from the nation. Truth has perished from the nation. Hosea 4 and verse 6. Let's turn there. Because this is saying pretty much the same thing as describing what's happening in the Israelite nations today. Nations that God intended to be lights and examples to the world, but we're not living up to our mission. In Hosea chapter 6, 
excuse me, Hosea chapter 4 and verse 6. Hosea 4 and verse 6. Hosea lists a lot of the issues that God has with Israel, but in verse 6 he says, My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge, a lack of knowledge of God's truth. Because you have rejected knowledge, you've rejected the truth of God, I will also reject you, the Israelites, from being a priest for me. Because you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. Why are our young people all around the world in such a mess today? I think we're very blessed in the church. But by and large, a lot of young people today are lost because they've been told there's no such thing as truth. They've been told there's no God. They've been told this book is just a bunch of fairy tales. So they don't have anything to show them how to live and how to avoid the problems of life. Hosea said, my people are destroyed, destroyed for lack of knowledge of the truth. One other scripture in Jeremiah 9, verse 3, Jeremiah says, no one is valiant for the truth on earth. No one is valiant or bold or courageous for the truth on earth. If that truth doesn't come from the Israelite people, it's not going to come from China. It's not going to come from Africa. It's not going to come from these other countries that are non-Christian. But they don't have a Bible to work with as a basis. So what he's saying here is that no one is valiant for the truth, courageous for the truth on earth. But we need to be. We need to be. In Matthew 17, verse 11, talks about someone in the spirit and power of Elijah who's going to come just before the end of the age to restore all things or recapture true values or reemphasize the fundamental truths of the word of God. And that's been our mission over the years. That's our mission today of recapturing what is true, what really works, and explaining that to as many people as we can. This is how you deal with the lies that Satan tries to foster on people. So God's truth is a very fundamental aspect of the spiritual armor that we've got to put on if we're going to fight and win spiritual battles. So the truth of God is our best defense against the lies of Satan that permeate our modern society. And if we don't gird our loins with the truth of God, we're going to be vulnerable. And you need to know what the truth of God is. You need to know that you know that you know that you know what that truth is in order to deal with the challenges that Satan will throw at us. A couple of other scriptures that just show the benefits of girding your loins with the truth. In Jeremiah 5.1, Jeremiah 5.1, it says, God will pardon any who seek the truth. As we approach the Passover, this is something to think about. God, I'm sorry that I got off on a wrong tangent, but I want to do your will. I want to follow your truth. It says, God will pardon anyone who seeks the truth. Of course, you have to repent and change. 
but you're, you're wanting to get in harmony with God's approach. Ezekiel 9.4 talks about, Mark those who sigh and cry for the abominations of this world. You see the direction the world is going and you sigh and cry, say, God, I'd like to change these things. God, work things out so that, you know, use me in some way to be able to, to promote your truth and your work and your way. So the truth of God is a very elemental part of our spiritual armor. That's number one. Number two. <clears throat> Paul says, put on the breastplate of righteousness, the breastplate of righteousness. What you might want to do is get on the Internet, put in Roman soldier uh, and see how they dressed. A lot of times the Roman soldiers, especially the officers, would have a big breastplate of brass or silver or bronze or steel. And also sometimes across the back. So that protected your vital organs, protected your heart, protected your lungs. This knight has a chest of steel, <laughs> basically to protect the vital organs in the body. But Paul mentions that Christians have something much stronger than a metal breastplate. Go to Psalm 119, verse 172. I'm glad that Mr. Strain talked about Psalm 119 because we use it a lot. Um, it just works out that way. Psalm 119, verse 172. It says, all thy commandments are righteousness. So our breastplate of righteousness has to do with the commandments of God. The Ten Commandments, the laws and the statutes, the instructions that we find in Scripture. All ten of them. And this is really our our breastplate of righteousness, the commandments of God. When you're obeying the commandments of God, God is going to bless you. He's going to protect you. He's going to watch over you. If you're not obeying the commandments of God and you're asking God, please protect me, well, (laughs) we've got to do what he wants us to do before he's going to do those things. There's an American preacher here I came across just before I left on the trip. He was saying the Old Testament Ten Commandments are not relative to Christians today. The Old Testament Ten Commandments are not relative to Christians today. He said Jesus only gave us one, and that was to love everybody. But that's not even correct. (laughs) That's not even correct. You know, you go to Matthew 22, verses 36, 37, 38, when Jesus would ask, what's the greatest commandment? He said, well, the first is to love God with all your heart. And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus gave us at least two. (laughs) He gave us at least two. But then when you define them, what does the love of God involve? Involves keeping the Sabbath. Involves staying away from idols. Uh, What does loving your neighbor involve? You don't steal. You don't kill. uh, You don't take things from your neighbor. So these two commandments really are amplified by the ten. So the breastplate of righteousness involves keeping the commandments of God. What are some of the benefits, very quickly, of putting on the breastplate of righteousness? Number one would be Psalm 146, verse 8. Psalm 146, verse 8, it said, God loves the righteous. 
God loves the righteous. These are people who strive to keep the commandments of God. If you don't want to be loved by God, that's your decision. (laughs) But who you know really is important. (laughs) And if you want God to love you, then show him that you want to obey him. Another benefit, Proverbs 15:29. Proverbs 15:29 says God hears the prayers of the righteous. God hears the prayers of the righteous. You want God to hear your prayers, strive to obey God. Let him see that you're striving to obey him. Another aspect in Proverbs 28:1. One of the benefits of having a breastplate of righteousness says the righteous are bold as a lion. They can be as bold as a lion. You can be bold whenever you're trusting in the promises of God. When you know what God's promises are, then you trust those things. You can be bold. You know, if your employer fires you for really no good reason, you might pray that God will be merciful. Because God told Abraham, I'm going to bless those who bless you, and I'm going to curse those who curse you. See, these are things we can put our trust in, put our faith in. When we know what God's will is, we know what his promises are. We can be bold as a lion. You know, some examples. Joshua was told, taking over for Moses, be strong and be of good courage. And God says, I will be with you. You be strong, be of good courage, because I'm going to be with you. I'm going to back you up. I'm going to run interference for you. When we lived up in New England, we were watching the New England Patriots game. And they had a garter tackle that was probably about six foot five or six or seven. He weighed about 250, 275 pounds. When he would open up a hole, <laughs> the halfback could get through because it was just nobody could, could deal with him. So when God is running interference for us, he's going to open up ways. He's going to make a way for these things to happen. There are benefits from trusting in God. David trusted in God. Esther is a very pretty young woman who attracted the eye of not so nice a guy, (laughs) Uh, the king of Persia. He was not a really nice guy, but she handled herself well. She was probably 18, 19, 20, something like that, acted very wisely. She invited the king (laughs) to a banquet, but God used her to save the Jews in Persia, this young girl. I think she had second thoughts, but she was told, you know, you're there for a reason. You're there for a reason. And God was able to use this young woman with courage. Daniel's three friends were thrown in a fiery furnace because they wouldn't bow down and worship an idol. I said, look, you're going to go in that furnace. They said, God can deliver us if he will. That takes faith. I said, God can deliver us. We know he can if that's his will. They were thrown in. And somebody said, we threw in three, but there's four. 
But the king goes down and says, you guys come out of here. Or come out here. And then the people standing around said, they don't even smell like smoke. <laughs> now, if you're just near somebody smoking a cigarette, you, you smell like it. But they were in this furnace. No smell. And the king concluded, your God is really a God. Daniel had the same thing. He was thrown in a lion's den. The king stays up all night worried, comes to the lion's den the next morning. Daniel, are you there? Did your God save you? He said, I'm here. And then the king threw the, the critics in the, you know, the lion's den. See, God, God has ways of protecting and watching over us. But Daniel was protected and Esther was protected because they trusted and obeyed God. See, this is our breastplate of righteousness. So righteousness involves obeying the commandments of God. And it's a key part of spiritual armor if we're going to win spiritual battles. We've got to put on and strive to put on and keep on this breastplate of righteousness. Number three. Paul says, have your feet shod with the gospel of peace. The gospel of peace. Roman soldiers wore a a sandal type of of, uh, shoe called a caligi. It was a single piece of leather, had a hobnail sole. So that you could you have stability whenever you're in mud or soft ground. This guy probably wouldn't do too good on soft ground. But at least his feet are protected. You ever stubbed your toe at night walking through a dark room? That is bad news. <laughs> Some people have broken toes when they hit a bedpost or something like that. But that puts you out of commission. But if you've got something protecting your feet, But in this case, it's not physical, it's spiritual. The gospel of peace. The gospel of peace. You know, peace is one of the biggest needs in the world today. Isaiah 59 verse 8 says, The world does not know the way to peace. Peace between people, peace between nations, sometimes even peace within congregations. I remember when we were meeting down at uh, the other hall. I think some people had moved from one side to the other. And they came up to me. I, I gave some example about some people will not sit next to anybody else. So the couple came up and said, what do you have against us? You were picking on us because we moved and you must have seen us. I said, I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't know. I said, I was just using a general example. But some people actually sit over here or over there because they don't like who sits over here or over or sits over there. You know, so even within congregations, within families, uh, the world does not know the way to peace. <clears throat> but Jesus Christ is going to come back. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Christ is going to return and bring peace to this world. He's coming back as the Prince of Peace. As the Prince of Peace. And Jesus Christ and the saints are going to show the world the way to peace within families, within congregations, within nations. We're going to have to know the way to peace. Now, what is the way to peace? Turn to Isaiah 32, verse 17. Isaiah 32 and verse 17. The Bible defines the way to peace. Peace. 
But this is not where the world goes to find the way to peace. <clears throat> I attended a seminar at a science convention years ago, and they had a, 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 a seminar where they presented a bunch of papers on peace research. And they had all kinds of ideas of how to, to promote peace, but nothing came out of the Bible. In Isaiah 32 and verse 17, it says, The work of righteousness will be peace. The work of righteousness, and the definition of righteousness, Psalm 119, verse 172, is the commandments of God. So the work of the commandments of God, when the world begins to keep the commandments of God, honor your parents, don't lust, don't steal, don't commit adultery, those type of things. The work of righteousness will be peace. And the effect of righteousness is quietness and assurance forever. You know, the countries I traveled through in the last month, there was turmoil everywhere. There was turmoil everywhere. Not quietness, not, not peace, because the world is not interested in looking for peace. They want it on their own terms. They think that they can work it out on, the, on their own way. Psalm 119, verse 165. Thank you, Mr. Strain. <laughs> it says, Great peace have those who love your law. Great peace have those who love your law. You know, you'll have peace of mind if you know you're doing things God's way. You don't have to worry about getting caught doing something wrong. It'll give you peace of mind. The great peace of those who love your law because nothing causes them to stumble. This is one of the tragedies of life. People stumble again and again and again. I remember talking to an older elder one time in California. He said, Doug, some people dig themselves into such a deep hole they'll never get out in this life. They'll never get out of that hole in this life, which is unfortunately true. See, God wants us to live an abundant life. He wants us to live a joyful life. The Satan doesn't want that. If Satan can get you to turn your back on God's way of life, he's got you. He's got you. So if we have our feet shod with the gospel of peace... You might do your own little Bible study on peace. You know, Galatians 5.22 mentions that peace is one of the fruits of God's Spirit. It's one of the fruits of God's Spirit. It's peace of mind. You're at peace with other people. You realize God's going to intervene here. He's going to take care of things. I don't have to worry that much about it. It'll give you a sense of peace if you know that God is on your side. We're told in Acts 5.32 that God gives his Spirit to those who obey him. So we need God's spirit to have the sense of peace. But the condition is we've got to obey God. Then he will give us his spirit. But then there's still more that we have to do. Second Corinthians chapter four and verse 16. We're told to nourish the gift that God gives us daily. Nourish that gift. We've got to be feeding on the words of Jesus Christ. 
feeding on God's word, imbibing of these things. And this is how we grow in peace, because we understand what God's will is. If we live in harmony with that, then we're going to be at peace with God, peace with ourselves. 2 Timothy 1.7, this is a whole other sermon, but we can just give you guidelines. You can follow up on them. 2 Timothy 1.7 talks about stirring up this gift. See, at baptism, we repent. Hands are laid on us. We ask God to give his spirit to you. But then it's like you're playing tennis. The ball comes into your court, then you can watch it go by. Well, that's a nice ball. (laughs) Well, that's a good serve. But if you don't hit it back, you're not going to play the game. God gives us his spirit, then he wants to see fruit from that spirit. The love, the joy, the peace, the patience that come when we nourish God's spirit and strive to use God's spirit. One other scripture in Matthew 5, 9, Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, because they will become the sons and daughters of God. Blessed means to be envied. To be envied. And this is in a good way. Would you like people to envy you because you've done things right so that you can show them you can do the same thing? You can get the same blessings? Nothing wrong with that. Blessed are the peacemakers. So we need to strive to be peacemakers. This is part of our armor for our feet, so to speak. How do you become a peacemaker? A couple quick comments. Proverbs 15.1 says, A soft answer turns away wrath. So this is, this is Peace Studies 101. <laughs> this is the bottom line. Somebody comes at you and they're all huffed up and whatever. Soft answer. Or maybe no answer at all. I think I've related how a guy came up to me at the feast one year in another country. And he'd been sent to Africa. He came down with a disease. He came up to me. I, I was just there. He said, you know, the church did this to me. The church sent me there and I got this disease and the church's fault. And I listened. And I said, wow. <laughs> You've had a difficult time. Let's talk about this in a couple of days. I went up to him two or three days later and I said, do you want to continue talking? He said, no. He'd blown his top. He'd vented. But if I would have responded like he came on to me, we'd have probably someone would have had to separate us. <laughs> But these things work. A soft answer turns away wrath. Proverbs 17:9. So the person that covers a sin or just kind of moves beyond it, lets go of it, doesn't keep nurturing it and focusing on it. The person that covers a sin seeks love. Seeks love. This is how you build relationships, not harboring something. Ah. You know, talking behind somebody's back or whatever, and just growling and, and nourishing this this thing. You got to let go of it because this is a way to promote love and peace. So, concluding number three, the ability and the knowledge of how to promote peace is a key part of our spiritual armor. The ability and the knowledge of how to promote peace. See, this is something we can grow in. Something we can grow in. I remember a member of our extended family. The father liked to cook breakfast every 
Saturday morning, I think it was. He'd walk into the kitchen. Honey, where's the, the pan for the, this or that? You don't know how to organize things in this kitchen. <laughs> it, it didn't create a lot of peace, especially on the Sabbath. But this is what happens whenever we're not following the instructions or applying them. A soft answer turns away wrath. Number four. Number four, it says, take up the shield of faith. And we've got a little red shield down here beside our knight in shining armor. That shield is a defensive weapon where you hold it up and you deflect criticism. You deflect arguments. You don't just stand there and drop your shield. Oh, oh that was a good one. <laughs> no, you defend yourself against these things. A shield is a defense against arrows, spears, rocks, stones, whatever, because you want to stay alive in battle. You don't have a shield. This stuff is going to bounce off of your face, bounce off of your head. We've got to be able to defend our beliefs. You know, it's interesting to the students. It's one thing to sit in class and write down everything the professor says. But we also need to be able to defend what we believe. What are some of the arguments against what we teach. What are some of the arguments? How do you deal with those arguments? Otherwise, you're going to get blown out of the saddle. We've got to understand what some of the criticism is and how to deal with that criticism. Because most of the criticism is false. It's made by people that really don't know what they're talking about, but it sounds good, especially if you say it loud enough. <laughs> but that doesn't make it true. Psalm, excuse me, Psalm 91, verse 4, it says, God's truth shall be your shield and buckler. God's truth. Again, we're back to truth again, the truth of God. God's truth shall be your shield and buckler. We need to know what's in the book. We need to know what's there. Prove it. So that you can put your faith and trust in that. Psalm 31, verses 1 to 4. David said, I trust, I have faith in the God of truth. The God of truth, his promises, his prophecies. I have faith in that. Again, this is one of the reasons for proving that God is real to you. Not to somebody else, but to you. You know, we've got a booklet dealing with the real God. You go through those things. But again, you can memorize the points, but it's got to be, God has got to be real to you, a God that you talk to, a God that you know hears your prayers. You know, the Sazalkas are here. They've been praying that God would help them sell their house and find another one. And Mr. Sazalka and I talked earlier in the week. He said, Dr. Winnell, things are not working. <laughs> things are not working. We talked about alternative B, C, and D, and E. Then got an email Friday morning. Things are working. <laughs> I think I mentioned, Mr. Sizelka, you need this experience. <laughs> if you're going to be encouraging people to have faith, you need to experience that. And we've had that experience two, three, four, five times where things looked like they were not going to work out, but they did in spite of me, <laughs> in spite of us. God has his own plan and purpose. 
So we need to prove that God really does exist. And maybe write down answers to your prayers. Write them down so you don't forget them, because human beings tend to forget that God does answer prayers. And Mr. Smith has had this series of articles how God created the universe. He created the human hand, the human eye. Read those things, because these things just didn't happen. The odds against human life evolving on this earth are just incredible. But we need to know these things, that the laws of God work. The laws of God work. The promises of God do come to pass in his time and in his way. I've been doing this series on turning points in history. It's been incredible to see how God's hand really has been in history. A couple of scriptures along this line, Job 12, Job 12, verse 23. So God raises up nations and he brings them down. He literally has and he's going to. He's going to in the not too distant future. You know, Moses talks about in Isaiah, excuse me, in uh, Deuteronomy 28:20, I think it is. He said, your downfall is going to come suddenly. He's talking to the Israelites who turned away from God. He said, your downfall is going to come suddenly. Isaiah 28, excuse me. It's also mentioned about three times in Isaiah and about three times in Jeremiah. The same thing. That's going to come true one of these days, unfortunately. Daniel 2.21 talks about God brings kings up and he brings kings down. In Isaiah 4, verse 25, several different times in that chapter, it says, The Lord rules in the affairs of human beings. God does guide the course of history. And he's going to bring to pass what he said he's going to bring to pass. So these are things, brethren, we need to nail down and know that we know. Because a strong faith is a vital part of our spiritual armor. It's a vital part of our spiritual armor. And without a solidly grounded faith, we really don't have any defense against spiritual uh, <clears throat> enemies. Okay, number five. It says, take the helmet of salvation. Paul is talking about putting on a helmet, the helmet of salvation. Roman soldiers had different kinds of helmets. This guy has a very ornate type of helmet. These feathers that are made out of metal won't give him much protection. But, you know, if you don't have a helmet on, you can have a breastplate, you can have your feet covered, but if you don't have your head covered, your days are numbered. Your days are numbered. Notice in 1 Thessalonians 5.8. 1 Thessalonians 5.8. Start in verse, uh, actually start in verse 6. It says, therefore let us not sleep. You know, Paul's encouraging the brethren to wake up. Don't go to sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober, be serious especially as we see these things happening all around the world. Uh, 
Let's watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. That's when the parties are. But let us who are of the day, those walking in the light, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. As a helmet, the hope of salvation. You know, a helmet protects your brain. It protects your mind. It protects and influences your perception, how you perceive things. It also influences the decisions that you make. Some of the hopes that we have, maybe do your own little Bible study on hope. Proverbs, you know, Psalm 119, Psalm 119, verse 147, David said, I hope in your word. I trust in your word. I trust in your promises. Revelation 5.10, we have this hope of becoming kings and priests in the coming kingdom of God. Jesus said in John 3.16, we have this hope of eternal life. Now I realize I'm falling into the category of elderly statesmen, (laughs) elderly people. Um, But we're all moving in that direction, even Mr. Weston. You know, we ain't what we used to be. <laughs> you know, we were all in college together. Mr. Weston, Mrs. Weston, uh, Mr. Strain back there. Um, I think Mr. Weston and I were in the same ambassador club. But we were each interested in two other young ladies. So we weren't interested in each other at that time. <laughs> but it's interesting. We wound up here uh, working together. And somebody would have said, you guys are going to be in Charlotte. Fifty years from now, working together, we said, you got an overactive imagination. <laughs> yeah, I mentioned this to the students on Wednesday. Where will you be in five years or ten years? Where will you be in the kingdom of God? Who will you be working with? Who would you like to work with? I could say, who would you like not to work with? <laughs> That's amazing. God has a plan and a purpose for each one of us. He's got a plan and a purpose for each one of us. And if we stay with the program, if we grow, if we wear our spiritual armor and use it, then God is going to be able to use us in very powerful ways. So putting on this helmet of salvation, we need to be ready to be able to give a defense for the reason that for the hope that lies within us, First Peter 3:15, be ready to give a reason and a, and a defense for the hope that lies within you. These are not pipe dreams we're talking about. They shouldn't be. These things are real. So the spiritual helmet protects your mind, helps you maintain a right perspective and stay focused, and we can win spiritual battles if we main, keep that. Helmet of hope on. Number six. So take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, as Paul mentions in Ephesians chapter six. Romans had a short sword. This one at the metal knight here has a little bit longer. The Romans had a shorter sword. It's called a gladius. And that's why they call them gladiators when they fight with these short swords. Um, you know, these knights in the Middle Ages, oftentimes they would carry a broadsword that was uh, 
probably about five feet long or six feet long. Um, we were in Stirling Castle, where they actually had the broadsword of uh, William Wallace. Now, the guy that played William Wallace in the movies was only about five foot five. <laughs> he would have never been able to pick up the sword of William Wallace. So the real William Wallace must have been six foot plus and a big guy. In Revelation 19, verse 15, it says, Christ is going to return with the armies of heaven, and out of his mouth will go a two-edged or a very sharp sword. And he's going to rule the nations with that sword, the word of God. So we need to understand what is in the word of God so that we can use it wisely. We also need to remember Matthew 4, 6, where it says, Satan quotes scripture. He quoted scripture to Christ. He will quote scripture. and We need to be able to pick out when he's wrong or whenever somebody he's using quotes scripture. Like the evangelist here in the United States says the Ten Commandments are Old Testament and they're totally irrelevant to Christians today. Well, that's a lie. He said Jesus only gave us one commandment. That's a lie, too. <laughs> but if you know the word of God, you can pick these things out and you're not bothered by these things. 2 Timothy 2.15, where Paul is telling Timothy, study diligently. Study diligently. Be able to rightly explain and apply the Word of God. How do you apply the Word of God in your life as a young person growing up? How do you apply it when decisions come up that you need to make? If you're studying the Word of God, you're going to have guidelines that are going to be very helpful to you. So take up the sword of the Spirit. Again, this is understanding the Word of God. And we're not going to be able to defend against Satan's wiles and his darts if, we're not, if we don't know the Word of God. Number seven, the final piece of armor. <clears throat> we need to be watchful and pray always. Watchful and pray always. Luke 21 says, be alert, watch and pray always so that you can be worthy of escape. We've got to be watching. We've got to be praying and asking God for guidance. You know, the ancient pagan Romans and many scholars today, they look for signs in the heavens. At least the pagan oracles did. Today we look to science and reason. Today we look to science and reason. We don't look to the Bible. We don't look to God. But as Christian soldiers, we trust in the God of the universe and his promises. And we ask God to guide us. We ask God to lead us and show us. You know, David prayed three times a day. Daniel prayed three times a day and probably more. When we pray, we're talking to God. It might be good to review as we approach the Passover. Jesus Christ's instructions for prayer. His disciples said, show us how to pray. Matthew 6, Luke chapter 11, he did. We approach God as our Father. We talk about our needs, our concerns. And we talk about asking God to forgive us as we need to forgive others. These are all things that we can pray about. It doesn't hurt to get down on your knees and start praying and then use this as a model 
You can read a little bit, then you pray about it. You read a little bit, and you pray about it. I read something about, uh, I think it was young people in the Czech Republic who said, nobody prays today. Nobody prays there. Hardly anybody goes to church there. See, it's no wonder people have no idea of what's in the Bible because they're, they're not even being told these things. As you talk to God, talk with him about your concerns. Talk with him about decisions that you need to make. God, guide me, lead me. In Psalm 119, David had this phrase he uses numerous times. Teach me. Show me. Help me understand. When I first came into the church, I started reading the Bible front to back. And I would come across things I didn't understand, and I'd pray about it. But I'd keep on reading the next night, and sometimes, boom, there was the answer. It was just a page or two beyond. God will lead us and guide us and help us to understand We've been called specially. Jesus said, you didn't choose me. I chose you. Ask God to help you understand why he called you. Ask him, how can you use me? How can you use me? Now, some of us are getting older. Don't think that you're washed up. Your example is extremely important. Your example is extremely important. And what you say to young people is extremely important. Encourage them. Encourage them. Good to see you here. You look really good today. How did your week go? Be interested in their lives. Prayer is a vital part of our spiritual armor. And as the commercials used to say about chapstick in this country, don't go out without it. (laughs) Don't go out without it. So if we conclude, we're living in a world and a society that is increasingly hostile to God and his ways. Paul advised the early church how to fight and win spiritual battles by putting on the whole armor of God. Not just a helmet, not just a sword, but the whole armor of God, all seven pieces. What I've tried to stress in the sermon today is each piece of spiritual armor is important. Each piece is important. Your shield, your helmet, your your breastplate. Each piece protects against multiple kinds of attacks. Multiple kinds of attacks. You need a shield, but then you also have to have a sword. You need them both. You need to know how to use it. If you're missing just one piece you're going to be vulnerable. If you're missing just one piece, you're going to be vulnerable. So put it all on. I would encourage you as you go home, review the sermon. Review the sermon. Study the scriptures we talked about. But learn how to use each piece of armor. Prayer. Faith. Your shield. Your helmet. Your breastplate your feet shod with the gospel of peace. This is why Paul encouraged Christians to put on the whole armor of God. Because we've got to be prepared for the spiritual battles we're going to face. Because we're all going to be tried and tested. We're all going to be tried and tested. But if we prepare and we're ready to fight and win these spiritual battles, if we put on the whole armor of God, we're going to be able to prevail and be together in the kingdom of God.